Everyone is talking about this. The true story of a rape case is written by mother and teacher Lisa Lennox. On one ordinary July evening in 2021, the lives of Lisa and her family were turned upside down when her 17-year-old daughter Beatrice, or B for short, became the victim of one of the worst crimes that can befall anyone. What follows is the story of the aftermath of this horrific event as Lisa, her husband Phil, youngest daughter Iris, and of course, and most importantly, B herself, are forced to navigate the police and the legal system in their fight for justice. Please be aware that this audiobook contains references to rape, sexual assault, mental health conditions, and eating disorders. There is also occasional strong language. Lisa, wake up. Phil's voice is loud and urgent, panicked even. I sit bolt upright in bed as the door crashes back against the wardrobes lining the wall, forcing my mind to full consciousness. What's... Before I've completed the question, Phil speaks again. It's B. A pause while I inwardly groan. What's wrong? She's stuck somewhere with no money on her zip card, lost her house keys, her phone's been pickpocketed. I imagine the scenarios, all of them irritating but hardly catastrophic. I remember her last text. She was on her way. She'd be home in twenty minutes. What could have happened between then and now? And then Phil resumes. She's been sexually assaulted. There's a terrible, awful silence while I try to comprehend what Phil has said. Disbelief, anger, shock, and dreadful, dreadful fear tumble over each other as I struggle to think through the onslaught. What do you mean? What the fuck? How? Where? Why? But Phil has already turned around and is striding down the landing, heading downstairs. Someone found her and rescued her, took her to the Duke's head. I'm going over. Join us when you can. A moment later, I hear the front door open, and then the house shakes as Phil slams it behind him. I'm out of bed in seconds, feet hitting the floorboards, only to find my legs are jelly, shaking and barely able to support my weight. Reaching out my hand, I grasp onto the tall boy that stands against the wall until the giddiness subsides, and then I'm grappling in one of the drawers, seizing hold of a pair of tracky bottoms and a jumper, pulling them on over my nightclothes, heedless to how the legs of my pyjamas bunch up around my thighs and to the fact that I'm not wearing a bra. Running, I take the stairs two at a time, briefly hoping, as I pass Bee's younger sister's bedroom, that Iris won't wake up and find the whole family gone. The Duke's Head pub is a few moments' walk from the house, on a busier road than the one we live on. I cross at random, ignoring every one of my own oft-repeated edicts about checking. Look right, look left, look right again. Do they still teach children the Green Cross Code that way? I don't know, but I've always impressed upon the children that they must be so careful, because drivers are crazy these days and they run red lights and ignore pedestrian crossings all the time. Cars. This is where I have always seen the most danger in London, from cars driven by people who seem constantly impatient, ignorant of the most basic rules of the road, heedless of the damage a vehicle travelling at anything over 20 miles per hour can do to a human being caught in its path. I have never believed it to be unsafe for a 17-year-old to walk back alone from the tube station at 9.30pm on a summer's night in a perfectly nice and decent area. But it seems it is. All those people who I'd hitherto dismissed as paranoid, who see rapists and paedophiles on every street corner, I suddenly have to take seriously. 
Is it really the case that they are the ones who've been right all along, and that I, with my liberal views and belief in a benevolent world, is wrong? In the pub, the young woman behind the bar takes one look at me, and immediately points through to the back, where booths festooned with twinkling fairy lights line the courtyard garden. I catch a glimpse of a weird-looking woman in the large mirror that hangs above the fireplace, and think briefly that this place, despite refurbishment and aspirations to be a gastropub, still attracts a somewhat eclectic clientele. And then I realise that it's me in the reflection, and I look awful, hair awry, no makeup, an expression of anguish upon my no longer young face. I resemble a survivor of a tornado or an earthquake, or a mother whose child has been attacked and assaulted in the street. In the garden, I cast my eyes wildly about me. Squashed together in one of the booths are two police officers, a girl who looks to be in her early twenties, and Beatrice. As I rush towards my daughter, I find myself registering how close together they all are, and how strange this seems in these times of social distancing and face masks. I clock, too, the unknown young girl's electric scooter, and wonder if the police are going to say anything about the fact of its illegality. All this swirls through my mind in a nanosecond, and it is not until later, much later, that I recall thinking these things and cannot understand how my brain could have occupied itself with such utter triviality at a time of such horror. B looks up. Her skin is grey-white, like ash, her cheeks streaked with tears, her eyes tormented, red with crying. Tresses of her long auburn hair hang like curtains on either side of her heart-shaped face, as if ready to be drawn across to signal the end of the show. A surge of nausea, followed by incomprehensible love, floods through me, and my stomach roils and turns as I swallow back bile. The young woman jumps up, making space for me to slide between the bench and the table, and encompass my daughter in an embrace so tight that it's a wonder Bee can breathe. Realising that she probably can't, I loosen my arms and sit back, meeting her gaze with mine, and say, I love you. I love you so much. Thank God you're here. You're... My words tail off. I can't say thank God you're all right, because I don't know if Beatrice is all right. In fact, it seems clear that Beatrice is very far from all right. And I can't say thank God you're not dead, because maybe B hasn't thought about the possibility that that could have been the case, and I don't want to make her even more terrified than she clearly already is. This is it, I think. It's happened. The thing that you always fear, but also know won't happen, because it doesn't happen, or hardly ever, except in our imaginations in our nightmares. Except now it has. What to do with this fact, how to cope, to proceed, to keep going? I don't know. I simply don't know. B is silent, and then suddenly fresh tears erupt from her eyes, and she begins to sob, quietly, motionlessly. Oh, my B, I murmur, taking my daughter's head in my hands and burying it against my shoulder. My lovely, beautiful, precious B, you're okay now. You're with your mummy now. It will all be all right. As I stroke and soothe, I suddenly become conscious of the absence of Phil. He had gone on ahead of me, but where is he now? I look around, seeking him out in the pub garden, my eyes struggling to adjust between the pools of light cast by the solar lamps and the puddles of darkness where the illumination doesn't reach. As my searching gaze returns to the table, I take in the sight of one of the police officers, sitting beside Beatrice, waiting patiently for the emotion of the reunion between mother and daughter to subside. The other, I see, is in deep discussion with a young woman with a scooter. Is that the person who found her? I ask the police officer. That's right, he replies. I nod. I can't think of anything else to say. I don't even ask her name. 
The music, which the pub must have turned down when the police arrived, has been turned back up, and someone is wailing about something being out of your control, and panic rises up within me, suffusing my veins, making me dizzy. The knotted wood of the pine table is hard and real beneath my fingers, and I press my hand down, hoping it will ground me, bring me back to earth. Cope, a voice hisses inside my head. Cope with this. You have to. You're the one who always does, the one everyone relies on. You cannot collapse. Beatrice lifts her head from my shoulder. Her nose is running, a silver snail of mucus trickling onto her lip. She looks seven, not seventeen, her flawless skin and long lashes devoid of all makeup, her body swathed in the kind of oversized, capacious clothing frequently favoured by those afflicted by eating disorders. Fumbling in my pocket, I drag out a scrappy bit of old tissue and tenderly wipe Beatrice's nose. The music increases in volume, echoing around the high-walled courtyard. Can we go? I ask the policeman abruptly. I think it would be better to get out of here. We can go to our house. It's two minutes away. Without waiting for an answer, I half-stand so that I can slide myself off the bench, taking Bee's hand to lead her out after me. Phil reappears, and I suddenly feel too tired and too bewildered to ask him where he's been. We're going home, I say. I turn to the policeman. It's 21 Montpellier Terrace, just over there. I point in the general direction. You can usually park easily in the street. The policeman nods his assent. I put my hands on B's shoulders and steer her towards the pub doorway, conscious of many pairs of eyes following us. On everyone's lips are hushed and murmured conversations about what's going on, what could possibly have happened. As we exit by the front door, the volume of the voices rises and the noise follows us, the excited tones of speculation and gossip wafting with us on the warm summer breeze. Outside the pub is a zebra crossing, allowing easy access between it and the betting shop opposite. It was installed when two old alcoholics were mown down, rushing from their bar stools to stake a bet on an important race. See, cars. They are what is dangerous, aren't they? Taking more care this time because Beatrice is with me, we wait for an Uber driver to stop. I begin to steer her across the road, but her legs wobble, and I have to pause to put one of my arms around her waist and to pull one of hers around my shoulders. Like this, we make slow progress towards our house. As we hobble along, one step at a time, my mind revolves with questions, with the fact that I still don't know exactly what has happened, what terrible ordeal my daughter has been subjected to on this balmy July evening. Someone has tried something on, groped her, suggested something lewd. That's what I'm thinking. As if she can read my mind, Beatrice starts to speak. The volume low, the tone desperate. I didn't know, she begins, and then repeats, I didn't know. The tears are flowing fast and hard, and now not only am I holding her up, I'm guiding her along the pavement because she can't see where she's going. Didn't know what, I ask. I try to hide the urgency from my voice to make sure it comes out as a question, not a demand. The desperation is great. The need to understand what happened, how it happened, is swelling and surging uncontrollably within me. Beatrice, what happened? Can you tell me what happened? She shakes her head and her hair brushes against my cheeks. We are so close together. I can't remember, she mutters. It's all a blur. He kept saying, baby, baby. But I didn't understand most of what he said. I don't think he was English. Right, I respond inadequately. Okay. I store away the information that the perpetrator might be foreign. That was important, a fact, something the police needed to know and might help them find this evil man who has terrified the living daylights out of my child. Just keep trying, I urge. Keep trying to remember. 
Was there one person or more than one? Bisha shakes her head again. There might have been two, but only one who did it, I think. We turn into our tiny tree-lined street with the well-kept front gardens behind white picket fences, vehicles neatly parked to make best use of the space because we're considerate like that. A couple of our neighbours have classic cars, an Aston Martin, a Morris Minor, and they are ghostly, tarpaulin-covered shapes, hump-backed whales lining the curb. Beatrice is speaking again, so quietly I strain to hear. It hurt, Mummy, she says, her voice a low moan. It hurt. At home, in the kitchen, I flick the kettle on. It's a crisis. Make tea. The police officer is standing beside me. She's been raped, I say, conscious of the sound of my voice, an odd monotone. Actual full-on raped, not sexually assaulted. Did you know that? Were you aware? We are treating it as a rape, responds the policeman. His tone is calm, simple, job-to-be-done agreement. Not unsympathetic, just straightforward. There's a pause. My name's Will, by the way. I'm sorry to be meeting you in such circumstances, but we're here to help. I nod. The kettle boils, sending a cloud of vapour into the air that evaporates and turns to water on the underside of the cupboard above it. Has it always done that? I've never noticed it before. And then, why am I noticing all these ridiculously unimportant things when I should be focusing on one thing and one thing only? That my daughter has been raped. Will's radio buzzes and rattles and someone says something over it that I don't catch. Then the theme tune to the Thunderbirds movies bursts forth from somewhere around Will's chest and I jump and stare, astonished. Sorry, Will fumbles in his uniform and retrieves a phone. Inappropriate ringtone, he says, as he answers. I look at him questioningly as he speaks, miming drinking a cup of tea. He shakes his head. I make one for myself anyway, but not for Beatrice because she doesn't drink tea, and not for Phil because I know he'll want red wine, but will probably be too embarrassed to pour himself one in front of these tall and pleasant representatives of the law. Not that there's anything wrong or illegal about drinking red wine, but still, there's a time and a place for alcohol, and this isn't it. I go to the sofa where Beatrice and the other policeman are sitting. I'm Jake, he says, as I sit down. The team are heading to the location now to start a fingertip search. Can I just check again exactly where it took place? They'd clearly already had an initial discussion about this at the pub before I got there. Jake holds out a mobile, open to Google Maps, showing it to my daughter. Beatrice, can you point to the place, more or less, as you remember it? B, I say. Jake looks at me, puzzled. Her full name's Beatrice, I explain, but she prefers to be called B. It's just what she likes best. I could add, I'm the only person who's allowed to call her Beatrice, but I don't. I suddenly don't have the energy to. B takes the phone in trembling hands. She stares at it, but I can tell she's not focusing, is unable to make any sense of what she's seeing. I know my daughter can read her expressions like a picture book. Where was it, sweetie, I coax. Describe the place to me. On the way back from the tube at the bottom of the hill, you know, where the grassy bit is and the steps behind the nursery school. Okay. I take the phone and zoom in on the map to the place that Beatrice has described. It's in between the tube station and our home, equidistant. Five minutes walk, ten absolute max, to our front door. 
I could have been there, could have gone to the tube and met B and brought her home, the way I would have done when she was fifteen and no longer did because B is seventeen, very nearly eighteen, and wants to be independent, and has lived in London and this area all her life, and in this house since she was five, and she could probably walk home from the tube blindfold. And I myself, the whole family, the whole street, the whole neighbourhood, walk this road at all hours of the day and night, every single day of the week and month of the year, and no one, to my knowledge, has ever had anything bad happen, not even a mugging, nothing, nothing, until now, until someone, some evil piece of shit scum of the earth, has raped Beatrice. My heart lurches anew. I hand the phone back to Jake and say there, I've zoomed in. It's just at the bottom of the hill, really near, and I... My voice trembles and breaks, and silent tears gather in my eyes and begin to trickle downwards. I had gone to bed. Beatrice had texted Phil to say she'd be back in twenty minutes, and I had gone to bed. How could I? Why had I? In that moment, I know that this is a point of no return. I will never forgive myself for not having gone to find my daughter that I had not been there at the time when my poor, precious, troubled child needed me most. London would never be the same after this. Neither Beatrice nor Iris would ever be able to walk alone in the city, their city, ever again. Their lives have been fundamentally and forever altered in just a few short moments, and I had been in bed. What? Sorry, I missed that. Jake is speaking, but I haven't heard. My ears are ringing, a headache pounding in my temples. I want paracetamol, but I'm too weary to get up and try to find some. I don't wait for him to explain, just burst forth with my thoughts. It's just, we didn't think it was dangerous. We thought it was okay for Beatrice to walk home alone. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry I let this happen to her. Jake smiles sympathetically. What I've learned in this job, he says, is that there's no such thing as the right neighbourhood or the wrong one, the right time of day or the wrong one. These events are random. They can happen anywhere. He's trying to be comforting, but his words are bullets straight to the heart. So we're all at risk. All women. All of the time. Is that what you mean? I'm conscious of sounding demanding, and as soon as the words are out, I wish I could take them back. Not just because I don't want the nice police officer to think me belligerent, but also because I don't want B to be even more terrified for all time than she already will be after this horrendous experience. I glance down at her. She doesn't look as if she's listening, seems far away, lost in her thoughts. The fear and terror will probably never leave her. I turn back to the BC. He's trying to help, I know. And he is, up to a point. But if you delve too deeply into what he said, it can only lead to even greater despondency. Because if it can happen anywhere, any time, then nowhere is safe. Absolutely nowhere. And where does that leave every woman and girl in the country? Sophie's dad offered me a lift, B sobs, but I said no, I never take a lift from him. But if I had... Her voice tails off and disappears back into her weeping. I stare at her, open-mouthed. It's as if a load of jigsaw pieces have been dumped in my mind, but I can't sort them out, and anyway I don't know what picture I'm trying to make. Sophie? But B was with Naomi. I don't know what to say, how much to reveal in front of the police... Should I admit that my child has not been with the person I thought she was with? Does that make me neglectful? A bad parent? And if the police mark me down as this, how much worse will that make everything for B? So you were with Sophie, I say, and what did you do? I remember my feelings of disquiet when B had left the house. I'd known something was up, and I'd done nothing about it. Stupid, stupid me. 
In that moment, I hate myself more than I've ever done before. B shrugs. I just hung out in the park. We had a few drinks, gin and tonic from a can. Sophie bought it. Then we decided to go home. Sophie's dad came to get her, but I said I preferred to walk. The PC looks at me inquiringly. It's quicker, I say, my mind desperately trying to assemble the jigsaw pieces. So B wasn't with Naomi, and she didn't go anywhere by tube. She just walked down the road, met Sophie, and went to the park. So what was the text message about delays? And what about the alcohol? B has been out with Sophie before and got drunk. She was seen by one of the nurses at the eating disorders clinic, who called me to come and fetch her. This is why she told me she was meeting Naomi, because she knew I might not let her go if she told the truth. The jumbled thoughts crowd my mind, making it hard to think straight. The road system, you know, I continue, trying not to show my confusion as I realise the PC is waiting for the rest of my explanation. One way is blocked off streets, and B would have wanted to have a cigarette on the way home, I think, but don't say out loud. We all maintain the ridiculous charade that we don't know Beatrice smokes, though of course we know, and she knows we know, but we all pretend none of us knows anything. As I look at the police officer, my inner voice is railing. Why the hell didn't he insist, this father of Sophie who I've never met? Why didn't he spot that B was drunk and vulnerable and make her get in the car so he could take her home? Or call us to come and get her? Thoughts and theories were in my mind. Someone hanging around the tube station must have seen Beatrice leave her friend, walk off on her own, followed her up the hill, waited until she stepped into one of the blocked-off roads and then pounced. What else could it be? I need to do some forensics, if you don't mind, Jake is saying. I'm just going to pop out to the car and fetch the kits. Back in a mo. Yes, of course, I reply, obediently, although it's not me who needs to be swabbed and stripped so that the perpetrator's DNA can be gleaned and gathered. How has this happened? Why has it happened? Hasn't Beatrice been through enough, struggling through severe anorexia, starting to recover, starting to win back a life again? She has worked so hard, come so far, overcome so much, learned to eat in a way that's approaching normal, gained weight, gone back to school. And now this. From my pocket, I pull out the same grotty bit of tissue I'd used for Beatrice's nose earlier, and even though it's disgusting and probably likely to cause some dreadful infection, wipe my eyes with it. Who cares? All my eyes can do right now is show me the ugliness of the world, the crime and the need, the poverty and exploitation, the misogyny and violence against women. I had always known it was there, but thought that, as I myself wet my fingers to the bone to provide a decent life for my family and give to charity whenever I can, and nod in sage agreement to the refugees' welcome posters that adorn the school where I teach, that I could rise above the tide of desperation that ebbs and flows around us all, that I could carve a nice world out of a horrid one for my family. Now I see that was all an illusion, a stupid pipe dream. I'm no more capable of controlling the way the world works than the next person. It's a sobering, disempowering thought. The truth hurts. Jake reappears through the front door, a sheaf of plastic bags rustling in his hands. He sits on the sofa facing Beatrice and me and begins opening the bags, laying out their forbidding contents on the coffee table, studying leaflets, tearing open seals, labelling stickers. An hour later, it's nearly completed. Beers had swabs of her throat, tongue and teeth taken, put the toilet paper she uses when providing a urine sample into a sealed container and had her fingernails wiped. Now it's time for her clothes. She's already handed over her brand new £100 Air Force Ones, bought because the last ones were falling to pieces and full of holes. I position myself outside her bedroom door and take each item. Joggers, hoodie, 
T-shirt, bra, knickers, as it's removed, then handed on to Jake, who's waiting at a safe distance, where he drops them into an evidence bag. Bizarrely, the only thing police don't want is B's socks. I'm pathetically glad about that. Beatrice has particular requirements for socks, and fortunately, the last time I went shopping, good old Marks and Spencer had been able to provide for those needs in their children's department, where I purchased a multi-pack with an animal theme. Socks with squirrels, the animal Beatrice is obsessed with, wanting a pet one like she's seen on TikTok. Hedgehogs, raccoons, foxes. Beatrice might be nearly 18, but she missed out on some key years of growing up when she was in the eating disorders hospital, trying to starve herself to death. She's nearly 18, but she still likes novelty socks adorned with cartoon-style animals. She still has a bed strewn with oversized soft toys from Ikea, and photos of her friends in an assortment of little collages on the walls. She is still, legally and fundamentally, a child, or was, before it happened, before she was raped.